Luke chapter 3 is where we're at. We're going to look in verses 3, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. You know, the passage here today is about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a prophet, really, of God, a messenger before Jesus, but he's also one of the most well-known preachers, really, of, of history. John preached a message to these people, and he continues to preach a message of repentance and baptism. And, you know, when you're a church leader and you've had a lot of success like John has, tons of people coming out from nowhere or out to nowhere from the cities to be baptized and all that, you would probably want them to write a church planting book or some kind of book that says, this is the way you do this and the way that you succeed. But in our day today, you might look at John and say, that probably isn't accurate because if you know what John wore, camel skin, and what he ate, locusts and honey, and what he preached, you brood of vipers, it probably wouldn't go well. That He wouldn't be writing a book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And so when we look at the book of Luke and we listen to the life of John the Baptist and his message, it was a little abrasive, but it was exactly what was needed because it prepared the way of the Lord. He may not have had the methods, the looks, and everything that people would expect, but he had the one thing that was critical. He had the Word of God, and he delivered it to the people. Now let me remind you, as we get back into Luke, it's been about a month since we've looked at it, and we looked at Luke chapter 2 last time, and that was the birth of Jesus. But the birth, uh, Luke chapter 1 is kind of where this story ends or, or picks up from. Luke chapter 1 kind of went through John's birth announcement, and then it went to Jesus' birth announcement, and then Luke chapter 1 ended with John the Baptist being born, and it finished in the end of chapter 1 saying that John the Baptist grew and he he actually lived in the wilderness. And that's where we're going to pick it up here. We're going to pick up John the Baptist's ministry, and he's going to come back onto the scene. And you would think that with this big of a person being brought in the beginning of the book, you would think you would have a lot of the rest of the book about John the Baptist. But we're going to bring John onto the scene in 20 verses, and in 20 verses, John's going to be gone because he's a messenger preparing the way for the Lord. And the reason we're preaching, just or I'm going through verses 1 through 20, is because when you read, we're going to read this passage, but let me encourage you as I'm reading to notice the very beginning of this, this pericope or this section, the very beginning mentions all the leaders during this time. That's helpful for Luke to actually set the setting, but it also, the way he sets it up is in verse 19 and 20, he re-mentions one of the leaders, and then he exits the scene, John's off the scene. And there's a purpose for that, because at verse 21, we see Jesus, and he's the central figure. And that's why this is one passage that we're going to look at today. So let me read this. It's Luke chapter 3, verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region uh, region of Eturia and Traconitus, Licinius, uh, or Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, uh, during the high priest of Annas and uh, Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, uh, Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
as it is written in the book of the word of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make, make his, his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level, uh, level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to your say, say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics to share them with, one, uh, with, who, uh, with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. With so many other uh, exhortations, he preached the good news to people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. You notice very uh, right away in this passage, we see just a list of leaders. And we see the messenger, and in this passage we see the audience. And, and really, just like any preacher, like I'm preaching to you today, John had an audience that he was preaching to, and he had a setting. Our setting right here is the Rio Grande Valley, and we're setting in Palmhurst, right in between McAllen and Mission. And I'm preaching to people that live in this community. John was preaching at a time uh, when all these leaders are uh, leading Rome, uh, Tiberius Caesar, emperor of Rome. This is probably about 29 AD. Pontius Pilate, the governor of Jude, uh, Judea from probably 26 to 36, he's in this area. And then Herod, and then Philip, and Annas, uh, and Caiaphas, and all these people, he lists them to really set the stage. And, and it would be like us introducing this message as being preached today during the reign of this president, during this reign of this governor, and we would list these things out. And this is helpful for us to see the history, but I think it also, John sets, is setting this up like many of the prophets before. You know, if you read the prophets in the Old Testament, many of them were, if, I mean, if you look at the book of Amos, just a random book in the Old Testament, not random, it's purposeful, but if you just open it up and looked at it, it'd be the same setting. They would say, who's the leaders during that time? And then the word of God came to them, and then this prophet spoke. And that's what John is doing at this point. John's acting like a prophet. But Luke is doing something in this gospel. He's actually setting up these leaders in the country 
that are all powerful, uh, these, these not all powerful, but they're very powerful, and they're, they're the leaders of this. And then he's going to contrast this throughout the book. Throughout the book, the, the, book, uh, the leaders are contrasted with the lowly. And we're going to see that even in this passage. The people that were outcast in society were the ones that often accepted the word of Jesus. And the ones that were the leaders of the powerful, they rejected Jesus and eventually tried to kill him. So we see some of the setting and the people there. We see the high priests and those people. We see the, the audience. The audience we see in the next couple, a few verses, we see the crowd, the lowly uh, tax collectors and the so- soldiers, and many other people from this. Now, in this, we're going to learn a few things about these crowds. The crowds are probably people that are Israelites. The reason we would think about this is he says to them and addresses them as people thinking that they are children of Abraham, and since they're children of Abraham, they feel like they're good. They're in a good place. Uh, Since they're children of Abraham, they're okay based on their lineage, not based on what their heart says. And so they're feeling pretty good about this. But there's also tax collectors and there's soldiers. The soldiers could be Jewish Jewish people, uh, Jewish temple soldiers, or it very well could be uh, Gentile soldiers on behalf of the Roman army. Our understanding would be that there seems to be a whole lot of Jewish people in this audience, and there's probably some Gentiles in this audience. And then he addresses his audience and he calls them by their name according to him. And listen, this is what he says to them. You brood of vipers. That's what, what he says when he starts his message to announce uh, to his audience that he's speaking to them. Now, when I try and talk to Faith Baptist Church, I would try and say gentle things and say, hello, brothers and sisters, or whatever it is, right? But when I, if you just started out, out, you brood of vipers. It sounds a little abrasive. And so, you know, if we were correcting John, we may try and say, you know, John, tone it down. But his job, we're going to see, is actually going to really take heavy equipment to start smoothing these paths. And so he starts out, you brood of vipers, connecting these people to the children of Satan, the seed of the serpent. These people would have automatically listened and said, whoa, this guy is speaking to us. We came out here to be baptized by this guy, and he immediately calls us brood of vipers. Maybe next time I preach, I should just start and say, welcome, hypocrites, right? And I'd be included in that as well. But, you know, that's kind of the way that John's addressing his audience. But it says there in verse 2 that the word of God came to John in the wilderness. And this is just like the Old Testament prophets, like Amos and many others. Uh, The word of God comes to them, and and, and he's here delivering the word. John's job is to deliver the word. Really, all he is, is the one that delivers the bread. He's just the delivery guy bringing the food to the people and saying, this is what God has to say, and here it is. And he does exactly what Isaiah said in verses 3 through 6. We see it in Isaiah 40, 3 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the Lord, uh, mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then he ties in Isaiah 52.10, The Lord has b- bared His holy army before the eyes of the nation, and all the ends of the earth. 
earth shall see salvation of our God. John comes preaching the word of God. And he does exactly what Isaiah said he was going to do. This is just, in one sense, a little bit more of Luke saying to Theophilus, here's the proof of what Jesus did. And he's setting it up to say, Jesus is truly the Messiah. And he does this, just interweaves this throughout his story. But there's more things going on in this narrative. And we see the message of John. You know, John is like the way he's going to speak is using heavy equipment. When I, when I drive over to pick up my kids over in Alamo to where they go to school, I go past all this construction on the expressway, and they said that it would be done sometime soon. And they've said that for the past few years, right? And so soon is very relative, okay? But I've noticed that to make the highway smooth and straight, they don't use kids bulldozers or they don't use little hand shovels very often it's heavy equipment and it's moving huge piles of dirt out of the way it's bringing in massive cranes to move concrete and i feel like this is the way john is addressing this his job as isaiah said is to make smooth the path of the lord And so what he's going to do, he's bringing in the heavy equipment to make this pathway smooth. And he's going to hit hard. And if we were in this audience, it would lay us low. All of a sudden, it would be like, oh, the reason that there's a pathway that needs to be made made straight is because we're the crooked people in front of the way, in the the pathway of Jesus. And one of the things that you also clear out of the way of pathways, if you've ever walked in like a a nature area or a natural park, you would hope that one of the things that's not in your pathway are snakes. But he addresses these people as a brood of vipers. Well, you would probably want to clear vipers out of your pathway. And so John brings the heavy equipment and he says, what I'm going to do is deliver the word of God. And let's see the content of his message. We saw the kind of the setting and this mess, the, what the setting was for this messenger. Now we see the content of the message. Verse 6, he says, the fle- All flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, Therefore, to the crowd that came out to them uh, to be baptized with him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, just imagine these people. So they're sitting there like, Hey, we came out here to be baptized. We, wanted, we heard about all this going on. We wanted to see what was going on. This was interesting. And now we're getting called out. I'm not sure about this. But John is waking these people up to their sinfulness and their sinful state. He says in verse 8, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to ourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up the children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John, we know as John the Baptist. The reason for that is he's a baptizer. And these people came out there to be baptized by John. And we see that, that John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now this can get confusing because we can look in this passage, there's a couple baptisms going on. There's a baptism of John, and then later we're going to see a baptism of Jesus. John's baptism is really a water baptism that is a symbol of a changed heart and repentance. Then we're going to see a different baptism of Jesus a little later. 
But John makes this, makes this uh, notice and says, look, what you need to understand is wrath and judgment is coming. They may be thinking, here's this messenger coming before the Messiah. We thought everything was going to be good and we're saved from the Roman Empire. But they're actually being told judgment is coming. He says, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? And, and just imagine this, John's out here preaching, right? And, and he's there, and they came to him to be baptized, and they asked this question, or he asked them, hey, who told you to flee the wrath that's coming? And they may be like, well, we were just coming out here to get baptized, and we just wanted to see what's going on. And the answer to that question is, they should have known, the answer is the prophets. The prophets throughout the Old Testament told them over and over and over, flee from your sins and, and get ready for God's wrath to come on your sins. And so he's just telling them exactly what the prophets had told these people over and over again. And they may be like, oh yeah, well, we didn't even think about that. But John tells them, who told you to flee from the wrath? Well, it was the prophets. And then we see he talks about God's kingdom and the kingdom of God goes beyond just Abraham. And John was anticipating their th thinking. Now, Jesus, we're going to see later in the, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus actually knows what's going on in these people's hearts. Like, he knows because he's God and fully man. John the Baptist just knows people's hearts. He doesn't have some new supernatural power to think what's going on, but he can read the room, and he's a good preacher, and he knows what people are thinking when he says, you brood of vipers, flee from wrath. And then they're th he's like, I know what you're thinking probably. You're thinking, we're children of Abraham. Dude, we are Jewish people, and we're okay. We don't have any problems. And John lays it out and says, God is able to raise up his children from stones. He's able, just as he carved Abraham out of stone, hewn out of the rock, and he made this generation and these children for him, he's saying God could do this with the stones on the ground. We're going to even see this in the next chapter. Satan says to Jesus, hey, turn these stones into bread. I mean, it's pretty interesting. God could probably do anything he wanted to change stones and turn them into anything. God's that powerful. What's even more incredible is that he says he changes our heart of stone into a heart of flesh so that we can turn and trust Christ. And John is telling these people, your status as the Jewish people, as the Israelites, that doesn't matter. What matters is your heart is repentant. And John starts plowing the way. I mean, he's laying down the hammer. And actually, we could say the axe because we look in the chapter and that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, you're a, you're, you should bear fruit because the axe is coming, right? He's not even laying down the hammer. He's saying the axe is coming. It says bear fruit in keeping with repentance. These people needed their heart of stone turned to the heart of flesh, repenting to God, and they needed to bear fruit consistent with repentance. What is this bear fruit consistent with repentance? Well, it's kind of clear. I mean, he's saying like a fruit tree that doesn't bear fruit should be cut down. I mean, we can see when you drive around this, this little church right here before the other building was built and across the street, when I was a really little kid and, and I was part of that, you know, grew up to, you said, hopefully that Emma doesn't grow up to be a troublemaker. I didn't grow up to be a troublemaker either. But 
When I was in this church and I was a little kid, Nikki's laughing, but you know, that there was, there was trouble to be made because there was a, right in this field right here was a little parking lot and then there was a field of orange groves, right? Orange trees. And we could go run in the orange trees and eventually those got cut down and then it was just a field full of like tons of jackrabbits and uh, all of that stuff. But you know, if you have a fruit tree in the valley that's not producing limes, grapefruit, whatever it is that you should have, eventually you just cut that thing down and get a new one and plant it there. And you just replace it, right? Because you know that if this one's not doing it, there's plenty of more that would. And this is what John is saying. If you're not bearing fruit worthy of repentance, if you're not doing the actions that the prophets have said, loving, for God, loving people and living for God, if you're not doing that, there's plenty of other people that will. There's plenty other people that will, and he's going to do that by reaching out to the Gentile people. A tree that doesn't bear fruit can't be called a fruit tree. It's just a tree. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to bear fruit. That's in the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, all over the Gospels, if you're a Christian, you are to bear fruit. If you are not bearing fruit, I mean, if, if a fruit tree is not bearing fruit, do we call it a fruit tree? No. It's a dead tree that needs to be replanted. Planted. If you're a Christian that's not bearing fruit, would we call you a Christian? The Bible wouldn't. And you hear John's message and you're like, dude, chill. But look in verse 18. I mean, it's fascinating. Verse 18 says this, So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Well, John... When are you going to get to the good news? Because all I've heard is this bear fruit, of, you know, bear fruit worthy of repentance, flee wrath, calling us brood of vipers. And now, in verse 18, Luke somehow got confused and said, this is good news. I mean, that doesn't sound like good news to a lot of people. It especially doesn't sound like good news to people that love their sin and want to live in it. When people love their sin and say, this message is ridiculous, you're sharing a fa fairy tale about Jesus, you're sharing fake things, you're sharing just old tales in the Bible that's 2,000 years ago, get with the times, well, of course this sounds like bad news. But when God does a work in our heart, and we start to understand our sin for what it is, and we understand the absolute wrath of God poured out on us, and the fact that He would send His Son to spare us from eternal damnation, that is called good news. It's excellent news. Let me just ask you, have you trusted Christ? Have you embraced this good news? Have you trusted the good news that you understand that you are a sinner needing the grace of God and the mercy of God, and you've repented of your sins? Have you done that? If you have not done that, please, today, understand it. I'm not trying to preach mean things. John the Baptist wasn't trying to hurt your feelings. He's trying to get you to wake up so that you will have eternal life and spend time and spend eternity with Christ forever. It's good news. Embrace it. And if you've embraced that good news, be baptized. Baptism is connecting us with Jesus. 
and shows us that we've repented and trusted. We're dead and made alive. And if you've repented and trusted Christ and you've been baptized, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Well, the application of the message for John is right here in verse 10. He says, the crowds in verse 10 ask him, what shall we do? Well, this is a good audience, right? They're listening. What shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with one who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came to be baptized and said, teachers, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, and, what, and we, what shall we do? We said to them, do, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. I mean, this is a good audience in some sense, right? Some of these people are listening and wanting to know what do we do? I mean, hopefully, the ones of you that are still awake are, as a good audience are wondering, well, what should we do, right? There's always, hopefully, at the end of our messages or at some point, we answer the question, so what? Sometimes I'll write it when I'm preparing a, wor- a, a sermon that says, so what? Right? What does this matter? What do we do with this information? Because I can just tell you a lot of info from the Bible. Part of a job as a preacher is to apply it, and that's what John's doing. He's telling you, so what? So what do we do? Well, this is what you do. And we should understand any time we look at God's redemptive work, when we understand God is doing a work, there should be a response. And when we hear the Word of God, we're always responding. You right now are hearing the Word of God, and in your hearts you're responding. Either I'm going to obey God's Word, or I'm going to ignore it. Or I'm going to say, not now, but maybe later. There's lots of responses. Only one is valid. Hearing and obeying Christ. That's the response that's valid. And they're listening. And he tells them, he says, listen. He says, bear fruit. And, and, and he tells the crowds, the tax collectors, and the soldiers some interesting things. He really tells them the same thing that the prophets and the law and everything had been telling them. He tells them, show mercy to people. Show mercy to people and treat them with integrity and with honesty in their, in their business dealings. I mean, what John is saying is not groundbreaking. It's not just incredible like we've never heard this before. It's not mind-blowing. It's really the basic things the prophets have, have been said, uh, saying. Love justice, show mercy, care for people. He says it throughout the Old Testament. It says it in the New Testament. He says, be content with what you have. Give sacrificially from what God has given to you. And be fair and just and treat everyone how God does. You remember, now just think ahead in the New Testament. We're going to look at this eventually. Jesus is going to say this. He's going to say, love God and love others. The two greatest commandments. This is really part of that. If you love God, if you've, been, if you've repented, what you're going to do is love others. And that's going to look like for the crowds, for the tax collectors and soldiers, it's all going to look very different in some sense, but almost exactly the same. Treat other pe- people as God would have you treat them. Now, don't get me wrong when I say this, but John doesn't say anything about Bible studies. He doesn't say anything about your devotions. He doesn't say anything about your prayer life. Those are all things that are good. We should do those things, right? If we trust God, we should do that. 
But John is not saying anything about that. So what does fruit worthy of repentance mean? Well, somebody may think it means that I go to 10 Bible studies a week and I pray for 72 hours a week. Look, that is wonderful. It is, it's truly wonderful, especially if you're counting that high. That's wonderful. But if your fruits worthy of repentance do not involve you interacting and ministering to other people, I'm not sure that it's fruit. It may simply be a checklist of me satisfying what feels good between me and God. Look, I, I love eating fruit from fruit trees in the valley or whatever it is, right? A honey crisp apple is my favorite apple. I love eating it. Fruit is actually helpful when, when you bear fruit and, or, or get fruit from something. It's helpful when it can be used, either eaten after my lunch, put in a pie like I'm going to get at Thanksgiving, or whatever it is. It's to be used and consumed and, and so our fruit of repentance, should we should just think and realize, fruit should also be looking to others. Now, I'm not telling you, don't go to a Bible study, don't pray, and don't have your devotions. I'm telling you, do that. But in addition to those things, what we really see the repentance and what it looks like to bear fruit is to love others and to minister to others. The American church has done a great job we have a wealth of information. If you type in Bible study online, you will have so many millions of Google hits that you can stay in your house forever and read the Bible and study it and never interact with anybody else and bear fruit. I'm telling you, what we do is serve others. You say, I don't know how to do that. Well, start with the people in this room. Well, I don't know their needs. Well, start talking to them today. Start asking questions. Start in your job. Don't, I mean, it's what he's telling these people. Don't lie. Don't take more. Don't extort. Live like God asked you to live with other people so that they see the light of Christ and they too repent and they too start living for Christ and loving others. Well, these people might have been confused. Some of them might have heard this message and thought, man, this is cool. Great message. Maybe this is the Messiah. Look in verse 15. John has to clarify it for them. They ask questions, so what? And then they kind of have some more questions. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. They're thinking, is this the Messiah? Is Jesus or is John the Baptist the Messiah? And John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of, the, uh, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The messenger, John, is not the Messiah. He makes this clear. He's clarifying this. And he's saying, look, you need to repent. I'm clearing the way. But they're wondering, is this the Messiah? And there's questions, and they're going to ask this even later. We're going to see, we see this throughout the Gospels. They're wondering, who is John the Baptist? Well, that's a good question. I mean, this guy's bringing a really tough message, and so they ask it. But he says, uh, he says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just the messenger. And he says this even, and I think John is not doing this out of false humility. John is saying, genuinely, 
I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of the Savior. All I'm doing is delivering the message. And this is a rebuke to me. I sit here sometimes and preach and I think, man, what will people think? What what will people say? And you sometimes think about what people's thought is of you. John did not care what people thought of him. His job as a preacher was to deliver the goods, to deliver the word. Get out of the way and say, I'm not worthy. I'm just simply pointing you to the Messiah. What a rebuke. I mean, it says that on our pulpit right here. You don't get to see it, but if you ever come up here, it says, Sirs, we wish to see Jesus. That's what I want to do is point you to Jesus. It's not about the messenger. It is about the one that we are pointing. It's the message of Jesus. John responds with humility and clarity. And he says, he says, there's going to be a different baptism. John's baptism was a symbolic baptism of the washing away of sin, but Jesus is going to baptize with Holy Spirit or with basically power. And this idea that he's talking about, this, this idea that he's talking about is going to be seen in the book of Acts. Jesus is going to be coming. His baptism is going to be different. His baptism is going to be with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What does that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit, we see in, the, in Acts chapter 2, we see very clearly, and, and remember, Luke wrote both the book of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts, and he talks about this Holy Spirit fire, this, this powerful fire. In fact, people were able to see it, these flaming tongues in some sense above these people's heads. John is telling us that Jesus' baptism is going to be one with Holy Spirit power coming to the people. But it's also going to be clarified that people are going to be baptized after their salvation that are going to signify that they've repented of their sins and they've united with Christ. When we get saved, when a person trusts Christ as their Savior and they're changed, immediately God gives us the Holy Spirit. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we receive. When we're baptized with water here, that's a wonderful thing. It's a step of obedience. It signifies our unity with Christ. But God gives us the Holy Spirit immediately at our salvation. And I believe that's what John's talking about. There's a whole lot of things we could go into that, but we can get really far down the rabbit trail looking at this. But I believe that's what's going on here, this baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. And if you connect uh, the book of Acts, you'd look and say, I think this is what John's talking about here. But the Messiah is also going to bring judgment. Not only is Jesus going to baptize with Holy Spirit and fire, he's actually going to be separating Now look, when we see in these verses, when we see in verse 17, Jesus separates the wheat from the chaff. And this language is used throughout the Bible. The wheat, the good part that you can actually use to make food, is what's what's wanted. The chaff is going to be put aside and burned. And John's saying the Messiah will know and be able to discern and is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And there will one day be a day that we will stand before the Messiah. We will stand before Christ. And I hope that that day you are part of the people that have trusted Jesus. And if you've not trusted Jesus as your Savior, please, 
do that today or just ask pastor or I and say, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know if I'm part of this wheat. I don't know if I'm part of the good that are bearing fruit. I don't know if I'm part of the kingdom of God. If you don't know, I would love to talk to you about it. I would love for you to know that you know that you're going to be with Christ for eternity. That's what John's doing. He's saying, wake up. And if you don't know, we want to tell you. Let me finish with this. The response to the message. It says in verse 19, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, talking about John reproving him, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things Herod had done, added all, this to all them. He locked up John in prison. There's various responses to every message. Just like this message, you may walk out and say, that guy's terrible. I don't care what you think about me. I care what you think about the Word of God and God. You may walk out and say, I don't believe the Word of God. Well, you're responding the wrong way. If you respond and say, I want to follow Christ and I want to bear fruit uh, in, in worthy of repentance or in keeping with consistent with repentance, that's the right response. And some of these people responded well. In fact, if we looked at verse 21, that's not on your handout, we would see some of the people in the crowds were baptized. Some of them responded correctly. Some of them believed. John responded to the Word of God himself with humility. John was also a responder. When I preach, I'm hearing the Word of God, I'm delivering it, but I'm also responding myself. I need to always submit myself to the Word of God. As the one that's delivering a message, I must submit to it. As you're one hearing it, you should submit to the Word of God. But there are people that will reject it. And Herod is mentioned clearly as one that rejects the Word of God. And it almost seems like an out-of-place thing. You, you think about, if you, if you were like the editor for, John, or for Luke, if you were editing this book, you'd be like, hey Luke, uh, you put this in the wrong place, right? Because John the Baptist wasn't arrested before Jesus' baptism. And we're going to see in just a couple verses next time I preach that John, or, or that Jesus was baptized. But John's not even mentioned. But we know from the other Gospels that Jesus was baptized there by John. But right here, he's not mentioned. It just says, John's been thrown in prison. And, and if you were the editor, editor for Luke, you would almost be saying, Luke, you've got this out of place. You need to cross this out and put it in the right place. And Luke would say, no, no. What I'm doing is getting John off the scene. And for you to realize as an audience, John the Baptist, is not the one you need to focus on. It is the Messiah. The message of John the Baptist is what you need to hear, but there are some that will not respond to it. Herod was one of it, one of them. Herod took his brother's wife, Herodias. What a wonderful name. If you're having a daughter, Herodias. He marries his brother's wife, John, you can imagine going into Herod, camel skin, after he's got a little locust stuck in his teeth, a little honey on his beard. Herod, what you've done is evil. You're living in adultery. You've committed sins, many other things he had done because John says, and he preaches this and he goes in. He doesn't, John doesn't care who hears the message. He goes and delivers the word. A powerful preacher saying, I don't care what anybody thinks, I'm going to deliver the message. And Herod says, well, lock him up and moves him off the scene. I tell you this, there are many that will hear the gospel and they will reject it. 
And there are people that will do everything in their power to shut the mouths of those that try to deliver it. They may be family members, they may be friends, co-workers, they may be people that are in powerful positions in government or rulers of this world. That does not matter. It doesn't make us step back and say we can't deliver the Word of God. We deliver the message with clarity, with accuracy, and we get out of the way and let God do the work even if it means we're thrown in prison. And John stands up, speaks up, and is locked up. What would John the Baptist say to the church today? Would he tell us, you brood of hypocrites, you people claim to be Christians, you claim to bear fruit, but there's no evidence of it. Would he say, culturally in America, everybody says they're a Christian because it's convenient and it sometimes gets them status and in the right place they'll say that, but they never show works of repentance. I think he would tear us apart for that because the Word of God does. Let me ask you your response. Are you responding to the Gospel with fruits of repentance? It involves going to other people, sharing what Christ has done in your life. Now you may look at this and you may say, John says to give two coats or give from what you have, your abundance. And you may be a person right now that's struggling. You may not have. and You may be in a place of need. You can still be kind and care for other people. But praise God, there's also others that can give to us and strengthen us, and we continue to share when God's given to us. Our lives should be lived concerning other people. Let me encourage you, Faith Baptist Church and the people here, live your lives so that you bear fruit consistent with repentance.